0: Welcome to Based Liberty. I'm your host, Darren Wiseman. I'm not politically correct, and I'm not afraid of the consequences for the things I say. I'm simply here to speak the truth as I see it from where I'm standing, and let the chips fall where they may. Welcome to Base Liberty, fellow thought criminal. Enjoy your stay. to Base Liberty. Darren Wisely here. It is uh, February 17, 2020. We're here episode 42 with our special guest, Alexander Harvey. You may remember him from episode 39. If you missed that, be sure to check it out. Uh, We're talking all all about money, Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, uh, what the future has in store with us. And uh, due to popular demand, he's back. uh, He's here (laughs) to kind of Kind of go into a deep dive and uh, expound upon the kind of framework we set up in the the last time we chatted. and um, and also kind of respond to some comments, some criticisms, and uh, and set the record straight. and also look forward. and uh, uh, Harvey has a pretty um, positive uh, forward look to the future, which is always encouraging because not too many people on our side of the aisle really do at this point in time. But we'll get into all that. So, but first off, Harvey, how you doing, man?
1: Hey, Darren, I'm doing really good. Hey everyone. Thanks for tuning in.
0: Yeah, I as I said, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, Harvey graduated from Hillsdale College. Um, he's worked with the Fortune 500 company. Uh, he knows his finance, uh, you know, real smart guy. And um he's here today. And uh we're just gonna kind of talk about what we what we left off and kind of a, a summary, but you know what again just so we're kind of uh, have a framework you know what is money just break that down for us
1: yeah sure um, like the textbook economics definition that you would see you know in any old um, economics textbook would be three things it's a means of exchange it's a store of value and it's a unit of account so if we really break that down means of exchange essentially it facilitates trade by allowing humans to convey an interface with a consistent and commonly accepted form of value. Um, It's also a store of value. So it helps us reduce future uncertainty um, by saving in order to spend at a later point in time. So durable forms of money do not go rotten in the same way that your food goes rotten after about a week or so. So essentially it allows you to, um, you know, purchase future food at a later date and time. Um, and other scarce resources. So, then thirdly, it's a unit of account. It provides us all with a common frame of reference uh, through which we can value goods and services.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So, yeah, those are those are your key, uh, you know, kind of fundamentals. And then, um, you know, you talked a little about the stock to flow ratio. Can you get into that with us?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I guess let me just back up a second because I I do want to just hit on some of the things we talked about last time, but I okay. I would like to just kind of like refresh everybody's memory um, and keep you know keep that top of mind awareness as we move into this discussion because it is going to be um, you know a little bit concept heavy and I want to make sure um, everybody's able to stay up to date. So what we talked about last time uh, on episode thirty nine was the idea that money exhibits Darwinistic principles, which means yeah. that you can have, you can have competing forms of money and you can have certain forms of money that do better than other forms of money. And there's approximately seven uh, characteristics that we can kind of use uh, as as a baseline to discuss, um, you know, good money versus bad money. So uh, durable, portable, mm-hmm. divisible, it's uniform or fungible, meaning it's not easily counterfeited, Um, it's limited in supply or scarce, and it's generally acceptable or recognizable. So when we go into the stock to flow ratio, that comes into play um, with the scarcity aspect or limited in supply. Um, So, you know, at this point in time, a lot of monies check the boxes of durable, portable, divisible, um, you know that that isn't so much a part of the discussion anymore. Um, we've kind of gotten past the, the the seashells and beads and stones, uh, you know, phase of, of money to now. You know, now the biggest I think the biggest hurdle to overcome right now is the limited in supply, um, because any time a money can be uh, radically inflated, it will be. That's just the nature of value. That's the human nature that yeah. Um, well, we will always try to um, debase the value because it's kind of like a free, a free, you know, free lunch essentially. But as we know, there's no such thing. Um, so essentially, the stock to flow ratio, um, at a high level, what it is is it's the ratio of the amount of the currency that's currently in circulation being used. That would be the stock. And then the flow is the amount of new currency that's introduced to the supply in a given amount of time. Um, gold has a very high stock to flow ratio. That's why it's one of the reasons why it's succeeded for so long is because it, its value can't be debased over time. It holds value very well across long periods of time. Um, it's high stock to flow ratio, I would say, is extremely important and necessary in a currency It allow, as it allows for, um, essentially your wealth to carry into the future, fostering the store of value feature of money. Um, This is essential to money, and and certain forms of money do better at this than other forms of money. But when a currency is um, pegged to an asset such as gold with a high stock-to-flow ratio, um, saving is incentivized because the currency will hold its value across time. But on the other hand, when a currency is constantly being inflated, this is essentially a tax on savings. And as a result, excuse me, as a result, what you will see is um, artificially low interest rates going hand in hand with uh, low stock to flow ratio and inflation. That essentially misaligns the incentive structures. And what it creates is a system where it becomes more beneficial for you to borrow money in the short term and consume in the present. At the expense of your future self um, so and what i would touch on as well since this is a liberty uh, based podcast um liberty libertarian and, and we're all very pro individual sovereignty um i think it's very important to understand that sound money and high stock to flow ratio uh essentially it promotes limited government in a very serious way because with sound money, the government's expenditures are limited by the taxes they can collect. Uh, however, with unsound money, the government can basically print money um, until its currency is completely destroyed. So the only restraint being, uh, you know, the, the damage caused by hyperinflation um, and so on.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, I think that's really important what you just touched on for people to understand because we're not just talking about you know your dollar going down by one percent because people say, well, I'll put it in you know this retirement fund and it'll equal out or whatever, but it's like no, like on a real level, um, you know these endless wars or these all these government programs, you know they can't tax us enough to pay for all this stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean they would if they tried to use an income tax to pay for all of it. I mean. It, it, it You know, it'd be done. And also people would, you know, rise up and because they would need so much tax revenue. But when they can just print it off, you you don't really notice it,
1: right. I mean, unsound money is essentially the currency of war. Um, and w- the war machines in the global military-industrial complex, um, sound money would be, I wouldn't say it necessarily the money of peace, but I think that it aligns incentive structures such that um, people are you know, people are incentivized to be productive and to um, governments are are essentially kept in check just by the very nature that they can't um, they can't spend themselves into oblivion in the same way that they are right now.
0: Yeah, great time for a Ron Paul quote, one of my favorites, as long as we live beyond our means, we are destined to live beneath our means. Oh, that's cool. So yeah, did you want to go to any more of the monetary history though, uh, moving forward in this discussion or?
1: Um, I think, I mean, we touched on it pretty heavily last time. Okay. So,
0: um, you know, I mean, we, we yeah, at a high level. There, uh, it froze on me for a second. You know,
1: Did I lose you there for a second?
0: Yeah, yeah, you lost me there. You just, uh, you said high level and then I lost you, but.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I guess high-level um, sound money and and the gold standard coincides with periods of economic expansion, um, mm-hmm. periods of creativity, periods of invention, um, even artistic expression, um, mm-hmm. whereas periods of unsound money and rampant inflation all too often coincide with um, endless wars, uh, excessive spending, and um, potentially a debasement of, of human culture and a um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a debasement of morality as well could even be seen. So um, I think those are all important themes to keep in mind. But now, if you don't mind, I'll just kind of switch gears to something that I didn't really get to too much in the last show, which was just a really deep dive into what Bitcoin is, uh, you know, what the blockchain is. It's just I want to hit on a lot of the key terms that you might hear people throwing around. Please. And um, yeah. OK, so um, I guess let's start Let's start from the basics. Um, what is blockchain? So the blockchain is essentially a shared public ledger um, on which the entire Bitcoin network resides. So what is a public ledger? Um, for those who don't have an accounting or finance background, a ledger is essentially a system of debits and credits. So a debit is essentially saying money came from this person and went to this person. You know, subtract $5 from Joe, add $5 to Bob. Subtract $5 from Bob, add $5 to Jill and so on. Um, So that's essentially just a a, a tracking um, of expenditures from person to person. So the blockchain contains all confirmed transactions um, and it allows Bitcoin wallets to essentially calculate their spendable balance. So Um, Transactions can only happen if the person has that amount of money in their wallet to begin with. So you can't spend $100 if you don't have $100 to spend. Uh, So the question is, how do we? um, How do we create a system that allows for? um, Someone to spend only the money that they have without having some centralized person come in and say and keep track of everything. You know, so that's Mm -hmm. essentially the big. Philosophical and technical game theoretical question that Bitcoin solves um, through cryptography and through um, something called the SHA-256 hash. Um, it essentially uh, creates a system where you don't need a central party to verify that Bob has the 5 Bitcoin to send to Jill. Uh, you know, there's a mathematical process that um, that goes into that. So Uh, Essentially, like we said, a transaction would be a transfer of value between Bitcoin wallets that gets included in the blockchain. Um, So what it it essentially works like email in a way. Bitcoin wallets keep a secret piece of data called a private key or a seed, which is used to sign a transaction. Um, This provides mathematical proof that the person um, who signed the transaction is the owner of the wallet. Um, So this signature also creates a system where um, there's physical and digital proof that um, these transactions cannot be altered by anyone else once they've been issued. So all transactions are essentially broadcasted to the network um, and they usually get confirmed within 10 to 20 minutes through a process called mining. So now I'm going to jump into mining and hopefully I'm not going too fast. If, If you think I'm, you know, jumping through some stuff, please ask me to. No, I
0: think it's good, you know, just laying out the foundation, you know, it's going to make it easier to understand. But I think the mining is something a lot of people have trouble kind of grasping. So I think that's really important to hit on. So yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah. So I'm just going to do it like a hypothetical example. Okay. So um, mining is essentially a a distributed consensus system. So you have all of these, uh, picture like nodes in the network uh, with no no center node, just a giant spider web of nodes, OK? And within that node um, someone sends a transaction on the network. So you send me 5 Bitcoin um, on the network. So that gets, that transaction gets broadcasted and it gets put into a pool with a bunch of other transactions as well. And then And so there's a pool that's filled with, say, you know, 10 transactions in it. Um, And then at the same time, there's all the historical transactions that have ever taken place on the Bitcoin network. Those are all the previous blocks in the blockchain, but what we're doing right now is we're forming a new block. So the miner is going to say, all right, and this is coded into the system. The miner essentially scoops up all those transactions in the system in the pool. So all those ten transactions, they get scooped up, they get lined up one by one by one. And then the miner takes the the previous block number and incorporates that number with all of these new transactions and cryptographically hashes it to create um, essentially a, a massive string of letters and numbers. And then, the bitcoin network is inherently going to say all right using all of the this information now solve for x essentially it's called the golden nonce and so this is a this is a little bit high level computer programming and i'm not even an expert on any of this so like um you know take it with a grain of salt but this is kind of the best way i've found to explain it um so now i have i have the little piece from all the previous blockchains that confirms of the history of Bitcoin. I have all of these new transactions that I'm incorporating into the blockchain and now I'm solving for X. And so now I'm essentially doing, you know, an insane amount of mathematical calculation to figure out incorporating all of the historical transactions with all of the current period transactions and solving for X. And I'm using all of this processing power to figure out, you know, how do I solve for X? And then I figure it out and I find a certain um, you know, a certain phrase or, or number or or whatever that solves for that missing piece. And I say, bingo, I've got it. And I broadcast that solution to everybody else on the network. And they're all doing the same thing simultaneously. But I got it first. And so that means that everybody else now gets now audits my work. It, I mean, it's it's not in real time, it's like in computers, but this is essentially what it looks like. And they agree. Yes, he's incorporated all of these previous transactions from the history of the blockchain. We agree with all of those because we've already validated those. And we agree with all of these new transactions that he's brought in and he's solved for the golden nonce. So yes, everybody agrees. This is is the next 10 minutes of Bitcoin activity of transactions. All of these transactions are legitimate. And um, this is now set in stone. This is the next block in the blockchain. And then it starts all over again.
0: So, do uh, do all cryptocurrencies work that way, or is that just specific to Bitcoin? Um, how would you, or, or is it similar? Or
1: it's similar. Um, it, I, it. So, what Bitcoin uses it, um, is called proof of work. So, mm-hmm. proof of work um, makes it extremely difficult for um you know a suspect individual or someone with nefarious business to make an alteration to the blocks so in order to um in order to change the blockchain you would have to spend an enormous amount of money in order to do that because Mm -hmm. if you think about it all of these miners are doing this independently right they're they're essentially validating transactions on the network and they're so i i forgot to mention one last thing once that miner validates, you know, a correct block and solves for the golden nonce, they get a reward and that reward is new Bitcoin that gets created. So right. we, we talked about how every 10 minutes um, a certain amount of Bitcoin are introduced into the system. Mm-hmm. That new Bitcoin comes as a reward because guess what? The miners actually um, are using a lot of electricity. Uh, to To run those calculations, it's expensive. I mean, it's it's high power, um, you know, electricity, and the more miners that are out there, the more expensive it is because, um, essentially, think about it like this: if if there were two mine, if there were ten miners mining, you would still have to make it be, um, you know, a ten minutes per block, and in order to do that, you would have to make it a lot easier because probability wise. There's only ten people looking for this magical number. So if but if there's a hundred people looking for it, they're going to find it really quickly if if we're doing it at the same difficulty as it was with ten people mining. So essentially, what they what Satoshi Nakamoto uh, did was create something called difficulty adjustment retargeting, which is essentially as computers get faster and the total amount of computing power that's applied to the network to create bitcoins increases, the difficulty of mining a Bitcoin increases proportionally, and that keeps the total new production constant. And because of this, we know exactly how many Bitcoins will be created every year um, in advance because of this technology. So I, hopefully, that was somewhat succinct. But um, if you want to think of it at a high, at a very high level, when you're mining a Bitcoin, you're assen- or mining Bitcoin, you're essentially Um, using your electricity, your computing power to verify and validate transactions on the network, and you are doing it for the reward of new Bitcoin being added to the supply. And so we touched on last time the idea of the halvening, which I think this would be a good thing to bring up. Mm -hmm. At this point, um, the halvening is essentially that when that block reward gets cut in half. So every 10 minutes, We have approximately every 10 minutes we have new bitcoin being introduced into the supply and um, every four years that um, block reward gets halved and now i believe i had um, previously stated that it happens in march it actually happened in may Um, so just apologies for the um, the slip up there but ultimately this is an important uh you know a very vital function of what bitcoin is and this is what makes it disinflationary so this is what creates the system where um you know the block reward uh, decreases over time and this is ultimately what contributes to the stock to flow ratio being high so now i believe um, i haven't looked at the research recently but bitcoin was on track to outcompete gold as the highest stock to flow ratio asset on the planet. I don't know if it did yet, but it is. um, It it is very close. We could actually probably do a Google search
0: on that real quick. Um, Um, That'd be that'd be interesting to know that's for sure. Yeah, it's not quite. It hasn't quite overtaken gold yet, but I believe within the next uh,
1: within the next few years, it, it is definitely on track too. Um, and Bitcoin would still be higher than um, you know any other currency that's in circulation right now.
0: That's uh, I mean that that's that's something that's for sure. So. It is something, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean that, that's impressive, you know, in and of itself. Um, You know, when you look at how short term, you know, the period, the development of this, this technology, this currency has been. Um, So, yeah, you really covered, you know, in a good detail, I think, and just now the concept of Bitcoin, how it's mined, um, you know, the value and uh, and why it's limited in supply, which, of course, is, you know, one of the most important aspects of it. So. Um, you had some comments about some of the other competing cryptocurrencies, um, you know, you face some criticism. Um, do you want to respond to any of that? I, I'd be interested to hear your take. On, yeah, um, I
1: will. Before we do, though, I do want to just, um, I do want to touch on one more thing, which I, I kind of mentioned with proof of work, which is the idea that it, it, proof of work sets up the system in such a way that it makes it extremely difficult for um, and extremely expensive for anyone to hack the network. So, because you have all of these miners independently doing this, the only way that you could take control of the network was if you essentially took over fifty one percent of the mining power that exists and then you could alter the blockchain if you had fifty one percent control. Um, so essentially, if a group of miners were to collude together,
0: mm-hmm.
1: this would be this would be this is essentially the biggest vulnerability to Bitcoin, I believe. Okay. Uh, if a group of miners were to coll- and this is this applies to any proof of work token. So mo- I would say most altcoins are also proof of work tokens. So if a group of miners were to come together and collude and say we're going to take over the Bitcoin network, we're going to alter it in a certain way, we're going to reallocate or, or increase the supply or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it it would cost a lot of money because you have to pay for the electricity to take over fifty one percent of the network. So mm-hmm. People have done the calculations, and I think this is one of the more compelling uh, reasons why I'm more bullish on Bitcoin than any of the other coins, is just the the sheer cost that it would take to 51% attack Bitcoin. It would cost a little under a million dollars an hour to hack the Bitcoin network through a 51% attack. So if we look at Ethereum, it would cost $400,000 per hour. To hack, if we look at Litecoin, it would cost twenty-nine thousand dollars per hour to hack. If we look at Bitcoin Cash, ABC uh, it would be eight thousand five hundred dollars per hour. So it uh, it starts to really dwindle as you go down into into some of these alts um, as far as the cost for a fifty-one percent attack. Um, granted, you probably aren't going to be able to do too much in one hour. So I think it would be something where you'd have to, uh, you know, you'd have to do it. Uh, for quite a while, so um, that's something to keep in mind as well as we move into the discussion about um, some of the altcoins. But yeah, I can jump into kind of my take on on the other coins, and I'm, I guess, if you wanted to lump me into a category, I would, uh, you know, be somewhat of a what they call a Bitcoin maximalist, meaning that I'm not um, I'm not necessarily bullish on any of the other. Um, tokens at this time, there are a few that are interesting, but um, for the most part, I mostly stick to Bitcoin. Uh, I only own Bitcoin. Um, most of my net worth is in Bitcoin. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so.
0: Do you put your it, money where your mouth is? That's what I like to hear. It's true. And
1: it's been paying off, which speaking of today is the uh, first day in history that Bitcoin um, reached over $50,000. So Bitcoin, I don't know if you saw the price recently, it's like 51,000 right now. So this is a, awesome. a kind of a historic day uh, in a lot of ways for the fact that the price has has accumulated. Um, you know, there have been ups and downs for sure, but I think, uh, you know, it's really, really exciting. So with that said, um, I think the important thing to talk about when we uh, discuss the, the altcoins and the competition that exists in that market, um, I think, Bar none, we need to talk about the immaculate conception of Bitcoin. Um, So the creator of Bitcoin and the inventor of Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, was essentially an anonymous programmer, and he did something very important after he created Bitcoin. He walked away from it entirely. Um, So in order for a new decentralized global currency, which is rooted in the idea of the sovereign individual to emerge, it had to be completely decentralized, which means it had to uh, not run um, in any capacity with any author, um, with any like authority figures um, or with any um, presidents or owners or CEOs, marketing teams, anything like that. There's no central authority figure with Bitcoin. It I think that makes it impervious to any sort of authoritarian or corruptible influence. Um, this goes hand in hand with Bitcoin's immutability as well, but I think we can touch on immutability later. Um, what I wanna say is that virtually all of the altcoins have a team in charge. They began the project, they marketed the project, they designed the marketing materials, they plugged these press releases, they uh, you know, invested money into it and they ended up probably mining a large number of coins early before anyone else did Ooh. and um, essentially, Kept these coins so these teams are publicly known individuals they <laughs> you know no matter how hard they try they generally can't demonstrate credibility um, that they don't have control over the direction of the network. They usually do have control um, and if they don't actively express that control it's implicitly implied in the fact that they probably have the back backdoor keys to get inside the network and and alter it. Um, and they have done that historically as well. So in a, it, it, I guess in a, in a way, once the Bitcoin genie got let out of the bottle, bottle, anybody trying to build an alternative to Bitcoin would only succeed by investing a lot of money into the coin um, and trying to build that alternative. And that would make them effectively in control of it. Um, I, and another question that should be raised is why are so many of these cryptocurrencies structured more like central banks? Um, Historically, they've adjusted wallet balances, they've controlled vast amounts of nodes, miners, and network hash power. Um, Most of these crypto projects look more like the financial institutions that they're trying to replace, um, if I'm being honest. And then you throw in, you know, a charismatic cult leader. To top it off and it's like man this looks a lot like paypal or visa or something mm-hmm. um, but you know a decentralized version of that so that is um another reason why i am uh fairly skeptical uh, of some of these coins so now i want to touch on immutability which is mm-hmm. another aspect that goes somewhat hand in hand with the uh the central authority figures um so the nature of bitcoin is such that once the first version of it was created and mm-hmm. released the core design was set in stone forever. Um, Bitcoin has shown itself to be completely resilient, not only to hacks or various attacks, but also resilient to attempts at changing or altering the network structure in any way. If Bitcoin's currency were to be compared to a central bank, it would be the world's most independent central bank ever. Um, If it were compared to a nation state, it would be the most sovereign nation state that ever existed. and I think that sovereignty is de- derived from the fact that, um, you know, you don't you don't uh, get to make the rules for Bitcoin. The rules have already been made. You either adopt it and follow the rules that are set in place, or you go somewhere else. Um, there's no other option available. So that's a, an important thing to keep in mind too, which I think makes Bitcoin unique. Is um, Completely resilient, uh, completely immutable in terms of the blockchain. Now that does come with some caveats, um, or I guess maybe some cons, which would be that you know if you send Bitcoin and you mistype the wallet address and you send that Bitcoin to the wrong wallet, you ain't getting it back most mm-hmm. likely. Um, so you got to be really careful, man. I mean that, and that's a skin in the game type thing where it's like if you don't have um, you know, if you're not responsible for your wealth and you're sending something willy-nilly and you fat finger that Bitcoin address, you may never see that Bitcoin again. So maybe you you send, you know, 0.00001 Bitcoin first to make sure, make sure the connection's good. But sure, um, sure. so then I guess I'll go into decentralization. I think um, for a currency, uh, for a crypto to be truly decentralized it needs to achieve two things Um, it needs to be resistant to censorship meaning anyone can use it completely permissionless you don't need anybody's permission to use it Um, and two it needs to be immune from meddling uh, meddling by project leaders or meddling by you know people that you know control freaks or whatever so I think and this may be a little bit of an extreme example but I think it's an important thing to keep in mind you know if the price of a coin is dependent upon its founder staying alive it's not decentralized so if you know charlie lee the founder of litecoin got you know unfortunately get gets hit by a bus tomorrow um, i think the price of litecoin would probably go down the toilet so that in and of itself is a decentralized is a you know an issue that that should be addressed if you know i think that's ultimately the genius in satoshi stepping away um, yeah, from yeah. the from the invention, because, you know, you realize that, like, if you tie yourself to this thing, then it ultimately won't work, so. Um,
0: yeah, and I think, you know, that's really been, as someone who doesn't have, you know, the technical knowledge that you do, that's kind of been your biggest selling point to me, is, like, it's not based on, you know, a demagogical figure or whatever, because, you know, in that... Uh, instance, you use a guy getting hit by a bus, you know, that's almost more like, say, buying a stock or something where there's a new CEO, and it's going to raise right. the value for lower rather than this is a currency. And it's going to be, you know, outside the scope of one person or one small group of people acting. So
1: yeah, so I think overall, what The theme that I observe with a lot of these altcoins is that they generally compromise on the decentralization, they compromise on the security and the resilience, and they compromise on the privacy. And um, in order to do that you get some shiny new features like maybe faster transaction speeds, um, larger block sizes, or you know additional coins in circulation or whatever. Um, But I think you know when we compare proof-of-work chains um, you know faster block times is pretty irrelevant honestly um there's no explicit finality in in a in a, a confirmation on the blockchain there's only implicit finality so i think ultimately like one one bitcoin confirmation on the blockchain carries more economic assurance than probably like 10 plus litecoin confirmations mostly due to the massive difference in hash power that exists um so if we look at um you know the fact that Bitcoin has so much more um, economic security and liquidity as well resting on the network compared to, say, like Litecoin. So to, to say that, you know, oh, they're basically the same thing except for a few tweaks. I mean, that's totally inaccurate to say there is, you know, miles of difference in terms of liquidity, in terms of network effects, in terms of um, network security. Um, these, net, you know, things like network security and um strong assurances of uh, you know the resilience of the network these are these should be the number one priority of a digital gold Uh, i don't think like creating bigger blocks or you know faster transaction speed is anything worth um, compromising on something like um, decentralization um, censorship resistance the the really important things that you would want to have in a currency that would be a digital gold. Um, so i think if we're gonna and I'm not saying that Bitcoin is, you know, going to overtake the dollar or or going to become a world reserve currency or any of those things. But if we're going to have a competition with global currencies and we're going to want to choose which currency we want to park our value in, I think that the important things to value in that framework are... Like I said, things like decentralization, security, resilience, privacy, censorship resistance, immutability, and most importantly, high stock to flow ratio, and that digital scarcity element as well. Um, I would also add one more thing, which I think the the coder base, the you know the amount of developers that are working on the Bitcoin um, project is, I think they're, Generally speaking, I would say some of the brightest minds in the developer space, um, the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin code base in general is far more accountable, far, you know, audited to a far greater extent. And I think far more innovative as well than probably the people working on Litecoin or, you know, maybe Ethereum as well. I know there's DeFi coming out now and that's um, exciting, but I think I would speak generally in saying that the um the talent in the space seems to have aligned itself with Bitcoin. Um, and then I guess my last point on all of this would be just re- in regards to historically, um, you know, the Bitcoin um, dominance. What we've seen right now as of um, as of last Sunday, um, Bitcoin dominance is at sixty percent. Ethereum is at thirteen. Tether is at 2%. Polkadot is at 1.65%. Cardano at 1.79%. XRP at 1.8% and so on. So we go down the list and it's, I mean, Bitcoin has just has a massive chunk of the market share. And rightly so, I think based on all of these properties, it doesn't take long for the smart money to realize where the value is and where the value isn't. So we've had, you know, a wild west of of people trying to emulate Bitcoin, uh, trying, you know, to make a quick buck. Uh, I'm not saying all of these things are scams. Some of them seem to resemble scams um, and and you know, have presences on Twitter that are like extremely uh, aggressive and, and trolling and, and kind of these shills. There's it's so many like shills. Pressure sales. So like tactics kind of stuff.
0: Just like
1: unbelievable hype men. And it's like, you know, you shouldn't have to have a hype man to tell you that what's going to be the next digital gold. Like it it should be implied, um, you know, based on the properties and and everything. So usually that's just compensation for something else. That's a good point. Is there anything um, that I can, you know, any questions I can answer on any of that stuff? Yeah,
0: I think, I mean, I think. Drawing that comparison, I think, is extremely important. I mean, first off, you just have to understand, you know, what crypto is, why it's important. But moving on, why Bitcoin is superior to these other ones? I think, you know, at first blush to kind of Joe Schmo getting into this. Well, why should I pick one of these? You know, what's different? I think it's important to know that because uh, it shows how much more secure uh, Bitcoin is, how it actually, you know, has these properties and that makes it stand out. So I think that's really good for your average consumer who isn't necessarily like, you know, super uh, in, in the weeds and all this to really know those key differences. So I appreciate no, you dude, explaining that.
1: No, I um, really, I mean, I really think that that discussion is something that needs to be had and it is finally being had in, in a yeah. much clearer sense. It only took Bitcoin shooting to 50,000 to <laughs> really like bring this into the mainstream. Yeah. again. but I think like, Hopefully this time around when people see things like Elon Musk buying all of that Bitcoin and, you know, some of these um, companies are now starting to get involved, hedge funds, institutional um, institutional sized attention is being um, given to Bitcoin again. Um, I mean, it, it's really important to. Understand the, this stuff that we're talking about before you jump in and and put your life savings in some yeah. revolutionary new technology with lightning fast uh, speeds. But uh, you know, it turns out that the founder and his buddies control like eighty percent of the hash power right. of the network, and they could basically audit the thing and and uh, you know redirect it wherever they feel like it. Um, I mean, that's you know that's not really what you want in a digital gold.
0: No, no, exactly. So yeah, we're we're coming up near the hour mark. We got some time left. If And you mentioned to me, Harvey, that you were optimistic and, uh, you know, at the beginning of this show. And um, that's always good, encouraging, because a lot of times I'm like, you know, almost borderline depressed when I see everything going on and how brainwashed people are and uh, where our country's going, our world's going. So tell me why you're optimistic. And uh, I think it'll be, you know, a breath of fresh air for a lot of people listening.
1: I would love to. Um, I think it's important to um, get this message out there. Um, I woke up, I was telling you, I woke up a couple days ago and after we were talking about doing another episode and I was like, man, I need to, so many of the people I know and and friends and family that are kind of more on the, on the right side of the aisle that, uh, they're so, uh, pessimistic and kind of gloom and doom. Um, you know, this is like 1984, it's the end of the world. I mean, And I really don't I don't agree with that. And I think that it's really a detrimental um, detrimental to think that way. So I mean, as holistically, what we're seeing, um, you know, I'm seeing a couple trends, um, and there's kind of multiple trends going on at, on a global level that I think need to be kind of weighed and balanced. So, um, we're seeing a decades old trend of continuation toward globalization, centralization of power um, culminating in what we're currently seeing, which is you know levels of geopolitical and corporate power that have never been seen before. Um, governments and companies have the ability to dictate and manipulate public action. Um, I mean, this past year has shown us that political machines and their corporate counterparts have no problem capitalizing on some kind of public health crisis. In order to bolster and perpetuate their dominance over the market and over the individual, and this is very concerning. Obviously, Um, you know the trajectory of global governments, media giants, multinationals—all of this kind of reveals a a steady trend toward centralization, towards increased gatekeeping, and generally, uh, and generally cooperation too between them. That kind of that kind of synergy, where it seems like the the top dogs are all working together, and they. Are generally screwing over, um, you know, the common individual, and I think um, we wanted to touch on this as well. But the Robin Hood situation is a um, a really a really good example of that. This whole GameStop, Wall Street bets, AMC situation that we've um, that we've seen in the last month. Um, I mean, I, I think it really shows where where these companies and these power structures are totally aligned with each other and they don't really have the best interests of the common people at heart. They can go they can go and create an ad that shows how they're, you know, all for the the common individual and they're all for your rights and and black lives matter and and yes, like all of this, but they will turn around and do something that really screws over, you know, anybody. So yeah. the every, everyday joe's. So, um I think that's a trend that we're seeing, right? That That is, you know, unmistakable, and there's plenty of reasons to be upset by that. But there's other trends going on as well, and I think these other trends are newer, they have more energy, they have more intellectual capital, they're not, um, and I don't think that they're going anywhere either. So I think we're seeing a new cultural trend in the age of the Internet, and that's decentralization of everything. Um, So we've spent the last, I don't know, 40 minutes talking about the decentralization of finance with Bitcoin uh, mm-hmm. and cryptocurrency. But I think we're also looking at um, decentralization in media. So this past decade, we've seen the emergence and hyper-populization of independent media figures like Joe Rogan, um, you know, other independent news people on Twitter um, and online journalists, even what you're doing right now, um, creating your own podcast. I mean, this is niche content creators being able to cheaply and effectively produce mass produce and distribute content to practically anyone in the world at the touch of a button Um, traditional media structures have been completely blindsided by this and i believe that much of their viewership has been and will continue to be cannibalized by the alternative space and that's comes down to one reason and that reason is freedom Uh, historically people have had you know, a few entertainment channels, a few news channels to choose from, um, and people kind of largely had to conform to whatever channels they were, uh, you know, whatever was on TV. But now people um, have the freedom to choose entertainment and media options that satisfy their requirements. Um, diversity in the types of content has exploded, and I do think this will continue into the future. Um, Joe Rogan has 10 million subscribers on YouTube. I mean the, these guys are and he's bringing in some really interesting people to yeah. speak. I mean even like guys like Alex Jones who may be way way too far uh, you know out of people's uh you know bandwidth, but I think you know I mean his his Alex Jones interviews had the most views out of yeah. any person on the platform. 26 right. million 26 million views on on Alex Jones. Yeah. You know, love him or hate him, I think that's You know, that that tells a story in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's very optimistic is that people are rejecting that, you know, cream corn garbage that they're getting force fed on TV and they're choosing the intellectually stimulating that, you know, anti globalist, um, you know, forms of media in a sense, um, which I think is great. And I think. On top of that, we have decentralized finance as well. Like I said, the rise of Bitcoin and cryptos—we're seeing, you know, the foundation being built right now for a system of decentralized finance that says, you know, screw Wall Street and screw um, all these corporate jagoffs. We don't need them. We're doing our own thing. We don't need all this KYC. We don't need all of this um, in- intense regulation and gatekeeping. We can do this um, without all of that. So I think those are two very important indicators. Um, I, a few additional things to keep in mind is that um, there was a record amount of guns purchased in 2020. We had 21 million new background checks completed in gun sales. So that's a 40.6% increase from previous years. I mean, 21 million new guns purchased in oh, one sorry. year. Like, think about that for a second. Yeah. Like, you, th- I mean, that is a poll in and of itself. And you can't run away from that one, man. Like, the yeah. people, I for uh, the account people account. want to exercise their rights, yeah. uh, their Second Amendment right, especially First Amendment. Is you know, big tech is trying to screw up, screw with some people, but I think you know, the Second Amendment. <laughs> that's why we have the Second Amendment because yeah. sometimes they they'll, they'll try to mess with the First Amendment. So um, you know, mistrust in media is, is kind of at an all time low as well. Um, you know, the most recent Robin Hood example. I think people are waking up. That I mean that was so clearly um, on display for the entire world to see how this stuff works and how these people will um, essentially screw over the the regular Joes at the first chance they get. Even if they're named Robin Hood and they're supposed to be about stealing from the rich (laughs) and giving to the poor. Oh, the irony of that. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. You no. know,
1: and I think too, like globally, we're seeing anti-lockdown protests in Italy, Spain, Belgium. Yeah, yellow vest protests continuing in France. So I think it's a global thing. I don't think it's just a you know I don't think it's just the U.S. Um, that's that's seeing this. So I'm very optimistic about that. But I think as more people continue to wake up to the realities of our current paradigm, I think we'll see a continued rejection and a course correction. Uh, back toward decentralized systems um, and localism in general. These games take a while to play out, though, so you don't really see on the day-to-day, you're still getting all the sludge on TV that, you know, makes you all upset and, and, oh, here's how they took your rights away today. Well, you know what? You still woke up and you still had running water and air conditioning and you still had probably people in your life that love you, so you have a lot to be grateful for. And um, I think, you know, we – you know, as a society, we need to start being grateful and start being optimistic because there is so much that we are taking for granted. Um, Like, yeah, we've witnessed a lot of of shitty stuff happen this year. We've seen people's rights get taken away at the first chance they got from some, you know, I think overhyped public health crisis. Um, You know, your freedom to breathe freely without a mask on has been wiped away. You've been, you've watched people lie to your ass on TV for the last year, if you've been paying attention. Um, I mean, you've <laughs> you've watched the entire country essentially get shut down yeah. by an overhyped, largely non-lethal virus that barely made a dent in the national death count. Um, you've actually probably had friends and family that have gotten laid off, like lost jobs. You've, you know, probably seen your favorite restaurants shut down. Like, all of these things are, are shitty. Like, there's no way around that. Um, it's, it sucks to see like the America that we have loved and grown up in to now be, you know, you know kind of shut down and, and cities been being looted and burned and, and um, you know, restaurants closed down, all of that. But, I mean, ultimately, like I said, we still have so freaking much to be grateful for, and we have so much more than any other generation has ever had in the history of this planet. So, to think that... Um, you know, to think that we need to just black pill and and need to just get all depressed and and, and all of this, I think is is the worst response you can possibly have right now. I I, I want to quote uh, Churchill for a second. Winston Churchill said, "Fear is a reaction; courage is a choice." I think right now we are at a crossroads where we can either be um, we can either give up, we can be fearful, we can be sad, we can we can kind of. Take the blows, or we can stand up and we can be courageous. We can do what needs to be done in our own lives right now. Um, the important idea being, before you before you go ahead and criticize the world, you should probably put your own life in order. And you know, Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I was, was gonna fit, say
0: you don't like Jordan.
1: Yeah, Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's, he's great. I I I like his stuff. So yeah. uh, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. And I'm not trying to be anybody's like, you know dad or anything but like before you just sit there and bitch and moan about all the stuff going on in the world why don't you like start taking care of the shit that you have to do get your ass in the gym maximize your potential and you know go from there so uh, honestly that's kind of why i'm optimistic and i think if i can just say one more thing yeah. uh, um, i think what we're witnessing right now is ultimately the final stages of the crumbling of a global control system, media that no one trusts or listens to, um, markets that aren't truly free. um, But at the same time, they're throwing everything they can into the fire right now. Um, Mm. Everything they can, they're doing everything they can to try and dehumanize people, to to discourage people, to dismantle uh, the human spirit, to unhinge people. Um, the only way that these control freaks win is if they can demoralize you and make you feel like you're alone. If you yeah. let them do that, then you've already let them beat you.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: ultimately, that's like, you know, plain and simple. That's how it is. Um, the truth is, you're not alone and you shouldn't let them dictate at all how you say or what you say or how you feel. Um, you know, nothing can capture or control the human spirit the true life force that strives for greatness that exists within every human being. This is a flame that cannot be extinguished, but in order for it not to be extinguished, you have to not extinguish it within yourself. Um, And that means staying grateful and rising forward with optimism. Um, I think we have control over this thing still. It's not 1984 yet. It's not a boot stomping on your face for eternity yet. Um, You know, do you really think that there's nothing stopping um, us from getting to that 1984 place. I mean, we um, we are far from it, honestly. And uh, people are acting like it's already here. And it's it's like you know, there's going to be some tough days ahead, and it's going to be um, there's going to be a reversal that needs to happen. But I think that we wouldn't have been put in this situation if we didn't have the power and the strength to overcome it ourselves. And, you know, humanity has has been through some crazy stuff on this planet. Um, and I think this is just another bump in the road. And we are going to overcome this thing. And we're going to be damn sure we never let it get this bad again, if you know what I'm saying. You know, like. Yeah,
0: that's uh, I tell you what, Harvey, man, that's a much needed encouragement because, you know, I try to be positive, upbeat. But, you know, some days like that black pill is just you know hanging over my head but you're absolutely right i mean it's not over so i mean i think a lot of people even though they might see things like us they want to give up because it's easier sometimes
1: it's the easiest pill to swallow that's yeah.
0: right. so
1: ultimately ultimately man and i'll go back to winston churchill for a second here mm-hmm. because i think at the at the pits of despair when england was literally i mean just so outnumbered and sure. the nazis were were closing in they they did the V for victory thing. It's literally like just a total, total 180 in the mindset of the English people. It's almost like a psychic uh, coin flip that happened where V for victory and everybody started doing it. And it literally flipped morale on its head right when things were at their very worst. And I, I'm a big Churchill fan. My uh, family's from England. So yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Um, you know, I have uh, have that heritage and I'm, and I'm proud of it. Cool. Um, but ultimately they don't have control, man. They have the illusion yeah. of control. And yeah. as long as we feed into as long as we feed into that illusion um, and continue to allow ourselves to allow them to control us psychically through having the, you know, giving them the illusion, they will always have control. But the right. minute we stop acting like these second rate clowns have any control over our emotions yeah. or our life, that's mm-hmm. when psychically we free ourselves from them. Yeah. That's when we shift the perception. So that's what needs to happen. And it starts with you.
0: Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it, I'm fired up, man. And, and to go on kind of your your overall theme, um, I think it was Jeff Dice who said this, that the 20th century was the century of centralization, but the 21st century will be the century of decentralization. And, and as everything you've just said, you know, we're seeing that happen right before our eyes. So I think that's a white pill. And everything you just said there is too you know um i think we're going to continue this decentralized path and and we're going to come out real good on the other side so i think we're going to come
1: out better better people yes. for it. i really do um i'm really i uh darren i am so grateful that you had me on uh today like please let me know when we want to do this again i'm happy to come on i got yeah. plenty of other stuff to talk about so uh you know thank you everyone for listening if you made it this far congratulations
0: <laughs> yeah I, I appreciate you know you coming on with your expertise but also just your encouragement because like I said I'm not you know I'm not uh, you know being dramatic or hyperbole when I say I need this encouragement some days with every and a lot of people do too I'm sure there's people listening that maybe you know what you said has kind of sparked that in their mind like hey you know I need to uh, you know pick myself up clean up my room and make my life better and like Get my shit in gear and we'll see where it goes, you know. And the more people that do that, the more good people uh, that are willing to fight, you know, that's how it's going to change. So I really appreciate you coming on, brother.
1: It's really the only way that it can change. Um, I mean, you are ultimately a node in a network. So you really only have power over the things within your life. And if you aren't doing um, what you need to do to encourage and, you know, uplift humanity in your own personal life, then you're probably part of the problem too. Yeah, and it's never too late, never too late to fix it. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, man, for having me on. And uh, I well, let's seriously... talk about
0: English history sometime. I, you know, I'm a big <laughs> history guy, so that interests me.
1: I'd so, be happy to.
0: Cool, man. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Alex. I appreciate your time, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. Take care. All right, you take care, man.